The world is in the midst of an energy transition. There's no shortage of effort and expertise, or even technology that support clean and renewable power. But there are still a number of challenges to address before the goal of zero carbon emissions can truly be achieved. We can't have everyone drive an electric car. We don't have the manufacturing facilities. We don't have the grid infrastructure. We don't have the rare earth elements. My guest on today's final installment of Innovations Uncovered is Dr. Liz Dennett. She is a Vice President at Energy Research and Consulting Powerhouse Wood Mackenzie, and she's also host of the Horizons podcast, which explores the themes shaping the energy and natural resources landscape. As a geologist by background, I get so excited about geothermal, especially if you look at some of the newer players on the scene. I'm also a big fan of some of the synthetic biology work that's gained prominence I am taking a little bit more of a wait-and-see attitude with quantum computing. Liz calls herself a passionate technologist, and you'll find out that she delivers both the passion and the technological insights during our 30-minute conversation together. Here it is. Liz, thank you very much indeed for taking the time out to talk to us today. We, we really appreciate that. So thank you. It is truly a pleasure to be here today. So thank you for inviting me on. <laughs> so let's kick off. So we're talking about energy transition, and it's the sort of term that everybody thinks they know what it means, but, but what does it mean to you? <laughs> oh, that's such a great question. And it's so funny because normally when you say energy transition, people are so quick to jump on these great technical solutions. They want to talk about things like solar and wind and nuclear and things that are really great pieces to the puzzle. But if we take a step back and we really zoom out, it's about the puzzle as a whole. It's about making sure that the citizens of the planet, and I mean planet as all of us as a whole, have access to cleaner and more sustainable sources of energy so that we as a unified planet can create carbon neutral to carbon negative ways of living so that we can ensure the planet is here for our children, our grandchildren, ad infinium. So, but can you break it down for us? So, so when you're talking about the different uh, types of uh, cleaner energy so that the planet is here for our, our, our children and our, and our grandchildren, that, that sounds great. And I think you wouldn't get anybody who, who, who won't sign up for that. But when you see the price of gas going up in the, in the gas station, when you have price of heating your home goes up and, and you've got more direct uh, concern. So what kind of timescales are we looking at with this? Oh, that, that's a great question. And putting it to and kind of the tactical and aspirational tracks is, is really important because it's really easy to say, yeah, we want to live in a world where there's less pollution, where there's more green meadows, where everything is peaceful. But at the same time, you're going to feel that pressure if you have to fill up your car. Right. We can't have everyone drive an electric car. We don't have the manufacturing facilities. We don't have the grid infrastructure. We don't have the rare earth elements. So at the same time, we have that aspirational track where, yeah, we'd like to be in this Star Trek-like world where we have these futuristic technologies, where we're running off hydrogen, where the byproducts are clean water and oxygen, but we're not there. And when talking about timelines, it's, first off, it's really hard to put estimates to timelines, not because we don't have a lot of the work that's been done, but because there's a lot of unknowable unknowns within right. the landscape. You sound like Donald Rumsfeld. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it goes back to that very famous quote where there's things we can predict, there's things that we know we don't know, and there's a lot of things that we fundamentally are unknowable unknowns. And that coupled with the pace of research, the pace of how technology is changing, 
There are going to be a lot of continuous improvements, ways that we can do things like extract energy, make batteries 2 and 3% cleaner, more efficient. So there's going to be this really continuous slope to making things more and more efficient. But at the same time, I'm an optimist and I have hope that a lot of these academic advances will lead to a few step change improvements. Not the night and day Star Trek type things where all of a sudden you wake up and we're powered by clean energy, but where things maybe are 10 or 20% more efficient. That's so interesting. So so if we could just follow that a little bit, and you're talking about a tactical and strategic uh, view of, of this, that, let's have a look at the tactical part of this first. So when you say that we're going to have continuous small improvements, t- talk us through that. How's that going to take us from where we are now to where we need to get to? Oh, that 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 is a very intricate landscape. And the reason I say that is because you mentioned the price of gasoline earlier. The price of oil is something that is not a linear cycle that you can trace. There's so many things that feed into that. There's short-term, there's long-term improvement projects. And the price of that one commodity actually feeds back into how different alternative energy sources can be priced, what their return on investment can be. And so that landscape, that foundation is actually more nebulous and a little bit more slippery than you might otherwise think. But parking that for a minute, if we look at some of these continuous improvement pieces, I'm talking things like looking at alternative energy sources, which is one very large one, looking at ways we can make battery technology a few percent more efficient. A great example of this is Moore's Law. And so if we look at how semiconductors can be more efficient, they can be more cost optimized, and we extract that down to different technologies like DNA sequencing, for example, that's gotten to be very cost effective. That's gotten to be very fast over time. If we follow those same types of paradigms, not just in the semiconductor and the DNA sequencing space, but follow those same type of linear progressions or exponential progressions into the emerging technology sectors that are happening, we can start to unpack a few of the variables that will start to set the scene for some of these continuous improvement pieces. So when you look at the, the the palace, if you like, of the different types of uh, of energy that we that we have at our disposal, so we might talk about renewables, we might talk about nuclear energy, we might talk about you know wind and solar. Give us a little bit of a picture from your perspective where you might be looking to for the energy that we need to make up for with from fossil fuels. That question is going to depend on where you as a human or as a country are in your energy transition. So I mentioned earlier that the globe, all of its citizens were a very heterogeneous group. And one thing we talked about in the Horizons podcast last month was Utility 3.0. I talked to Benjamin Atia and William Brent, who is with Husk Power Systems, and we looked at Africa. Now, Africa is a perfect microcosm when you think about how you can look at clean energy throughout the planet. Because in Africa, you have some places that are really reliant on diesel generators. And you have some places that have these mini-grid systems. If you're not keen on mini-grids, they are some of the coolest, coolest systems. Essentially, you have these freestanding grids where you can have solar panels coupled to energy storage systems, coupled to some secondary energy generation storage systems. And then you have other places that have much more mature and connected infrastructure. And so Africa is further confounded by the fact, I'm a geologist by background, it has this this geologic feature known as the East African Rift Valley, which means your your geothermal gradient is pretty shallow. So if you wanted to do geothermal power, you also have the potential to do that. 
And so when you look at Africa as a whole, which is a very heterogeneous group, when you look at the population growth that's planned, when you look at the needs of its citizens, when you look at at its policies, when you look at the public and private sectors going on in there, it really becomes apparent that even just in one continent, it's not a one-stop shop. You can't come in and say, nuclear will help or (laughs) geothermal will help and this is all you need because everyone's at a different place on that energy journey. So let's take in all that together. What do you think some of the biggest challenges are? My answer is is not a glamorous, cool answer, but it's one that has been prickling in the back of my mind ever since I went to grad school in Wisconsin and rode my bike between many lakes going to and from class, and that is access to fresh water. Okay. You know, if you look at the amount of water it takes to produce things like chips, it takes something like 3,000 gallons of water to make a cell phone. Semiconductor chips need 2,000 gallons of water. If you are talking about solar power, for instance, photovoltaic cells, the chips, a one foot wide wafer needs uh, like another 2000 gallons of water. And you have to keep those clean. You have to hose them down, especially if you're in arid environments or else you're going to lose your power generating ability. You need water to cool server farms and IT resources and all life on earth as we know it needs access to water. So this actually comes full circle back to what we mean about the energy transition and a little bit more about sustainability. We need to balance the resources of our planet with the needs of our species. So we have to survive. We have to create equal opportunities for everyone. And we also have to have enough water for this really, really cool technology. To me, that's where we see both the public and private sectors playing a role too, because the private sector has the ability to innovate, to create things like chipsets that are more energy efficient, that require less water. And then we see the public sector and we see our policies being able to set guardrails and guidelines that empower the private sector to innovate. But really, it all comes down to that nice big old glass of water that you frequently drink and take for granted. Let's just unpick that a little bit. For, for what, what do you think, in your view, what are some of the technologies that uh, you're most excited about? What are some of the breakthroughs that you're kind of uh, thinking, yeah, that's going to take us somewhere? Okay, how much, how much time do I have to talk about these? <laughs> What's your favorite? What, what makes you, you know, what makes you the most optimistic? And, you know? um, again, as a geologist by background, I get so excited about geothermal, especially if you look at some of the newer players on the scene. There are some companies like Ever, like GA Drilling, like Fervo, and what they're doing is looking outside of the realms where you have to have that traditionally shallow continental crust, and you can only drill geothermal in places that were pretty much already drilling geothermal. Um, I'm also a big fan of some of the synthetic biology work that's gained prominence as they've really gone to upscale. We have a lot of work that's been done sequencing the genome how can we couple that to actually reverse it and decarbonize its scale? Um, I am taking a little bit more of a wait and see attitude with quantum computing. Oh, it is coming. Do not get me wrong. But right now, we're still defining the problem sets that quantum computing can address. If you're a total newbie to quantum computing, essentially it leverages some of these principles from quantum mechanics and Instead of breaking down binary into ones and zeros, you have these things called qubits. So you can use these quantum properties called superposition and entanglement so you can have multiple states at once. Now, what's so great about this is that by being a one and zero simultaneously, 
you can optimize problems, and you can understand the natural state of things. So traveling salesman problem, if you've ever taken higher math or programming and spent hours doing dynamic programming to try to unpack this, we have all these new tools we can throw at it. It's going to be great for natural systems, for biology, for drug discovery, for optimization. But from what I've seen, the hardware is not quite there yet. But that's okay. All we need to do now is define what the, the problems will be, what they won't be, and it's an active area of growth, growth and research. Once we have that, I think this is going to be one of those step changes that I teed up. Let's just uh, unpick that again, if you, you know, if you wouldn't mind. So, so when we're looking at it, what's the role? Let's look at the role of the private sector and role of the public sector within that. What's the what's the role of the public sector here? So, this, it might be obvious in terms of private sector, in terms of you know ingenuity and uh, entrepreneurship, and uh, but what's the role of government here? Yeah, that's that is a ongoing ballet that I'm looking forward to seeing continually evolved. You know, in the plastic surgery episode of the Horizons podcast, for example, I learned a lot because we had Dr. Lars Berger on from Nest who talked about how plastics companies are focusing on sustainability now more than ever, partially due to consumers like you and I raising our hands and saying, hey, we want more sustainable plastics, but also due to things like the expensive feedstocks. And the consumer response and the private sector response is definitely one half of that circle. I view the other half as strong policies, policies that set goals but are not overly prescriptive. That way, the private sector can innovate. They can be agile with how they solve the problems. They can continue to inspire the best and brightest, but they hold a bar and they make sure that the private sector can continue to get there and continue to deliver. And when you're looking at uh, current public policy, do you think uh, our public policymakers are up to the mark? Do you think public policy is about right? That is a very loaded question. Stephen, I'll tell you what, next time we're in the same city, you and I can grab a drink and <laughs> I, will, I will answer that one very candidly. Okay. All right. So let's talk about transport. So, so one of the biggest issues, isn't it, really, when we're talking about uh, emissions and we're talking about this energy transition is, uh, is transportation. And we've got uh, many different facets of that. We've got cars themselves, but we've, we've, uh, we've got the grid. And you talked earlier about the problem with uh, having enough metals, you know, precious metals for the, for the cars. What do you think some of the big issues are in terms of transportation? I think one of the biggest issues is where people live and how we have developed city planning at scale. It's especially apparent in some factions of America, especially where I live, where we have a lot of people. I I live in Houston, for example. We have a lot of suburban sprawl. We do not have zoning laws. And there is very, very little public transportation to get anywhere. Public transportation, when done correctly at scale, is in a very effective route of moving people so that you don't have to have two cars. I also live in a one-car household, which is strange compared to talking to our friends and family. And we drive an electric car, which is also strange. I tee these things up not as a humble brag at all, but because part of solving the transportation challenge goes back to that good old adage about reducing, reusing, and recycling. So if we can design cities and create environments where our people can live such that we don't need as many of the raw materials, we don't need to make as many cars, we don't need to have the same extraction requirements from the planet, that in and of itself creates a different demand so that we can be more creative about how we actually have to do that. Um, And 
going back to the pieces about electric cars, more fuel efficient cars, these are all steps in the right direction. There's not one magic answer. It is absolutely foolhardy to say that electric cars are a more energy efficient choice or a more eco-friendly choice than a car that you've had that's in really good shape that gets really good fuel economy. There's trade-offs to be had for every decision. And just like the example that we teed up from Africa, every individual's requirements and where they are are unique and frequently broad statements tend to miss the mark. One of the things that really uh, interests me is uh, behavior change, you know, because we're talking about energy transition and you make it sound either very uh, plausible. We've got all this different technology that's coming along. There's some that are going to give us small changes. There are going to some that are going to give us step changes. We're looking forward to, 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 to quantum computers and the like. But do you are you optimistic that uh, as a public, we're going to change our behavior in such a way that uh, that is going to make this happen. There's a UN report came out today, basically said that um, we have to have the peak of carbonization in the next two or three years if we're going to get to carbon neutral by 2050. In the next two or three years, so that means we're going to have to change the way we do things. We're going to have to have more fuel efficient houses. We're going to have to travel more efficiently. We're going to have to make more fuel efficient choices. Are you optimistic that we're going to be able to grasp that particular nettle? I don't know. And that is a terrifying sentiment to say out loud, especially when it can be publicly quoted and attributed back to me. I do not know. I do know that if we're going to move forward as a planet and not as individuals, we need to do so as a planet with the collective needs in mind. This was one thing that I've been thinking about ever since we had a podcast episode. And um, Monique Mahdi, she's an environmental leader fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. We were talking about how the U.S., it's pretty easy for us to tighten our belt to do things like cut back on carbon emissions. But what happens with developing countries, for instance, like a lot of those in Africa that do not physically have any notches on their belt that they can tighten up. And she was speaking about the need to realize that in many ways from a planetary level, this is a zero-sum game. We are either going to win or lose this together. And many times when we act locally but think globally, it's easy to see that. But I am not sure if we are in a mindset and we, as citizens of this world, are going to make the necessary changes. It terrifies me to say that publicly. <laughs> and I think it's very honest of you to say that, I, I, and, and refreshing, refreshing that you did. I mean, one of the things that strikes me when I've been doing this entire podcast series is, again, uncomfortable truth, maybe, is that a lot of the, the advances that you talk about, you talk about quantum, you talk about uh, uh, different uses of technology, are available to people with money, are available to the richer part of the world. But you also made that point so eloquently then that, you know, we are all in this together, that it's a, about uh, carbon neutral for for the planet. What do you think some of the, the, what do you think the West, if you like, the richer country, what do you think we can do to make that? A, a more of a reality? I think it's going to require a lot of sacrifice from our end. It's going to require things. It's going to require us to have fewer things. Going back to the podcast we had with Dr. Lars, I was asking him a very trivial example about yogurt cups. 
how do I know at the grocery store which pot of yogurt has the least amount of plastic? And he said, Liz, why don't you just consume less yogurt? And to (laughs) me, that was kind of a light bulb moment because consuming fewer resources and, and to your point about going on trips, do I need to go to this meeting in person? Can I video in? Do I need to replace my car every two years? Could I do it every four or five years? Do I need X? Do I need Y? Is a very tough reality to face. And it goes very contrary to many things that we fundamentally view as success and we view as upward momentum. So I think it's going to require viewing and internalizing what success and what okay and good looks like and rewriting all of that on an individual level, which is a very deep answer. <laughs> that is that is a deep answer. And it makes me also think, I'm not going to come back to you on it, but it makes me also think about the, how do you measure any of this? You know, how do you, how do you mm-hmm. measure what this different form, because you must be right, but how does this different form of success look like? I mean, and how, 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 do, you, how do you know? One of the things I wanted to come back to was the point you made at the beginning, maybe to end on, which is when you were talking about the strategic and tactical issue here in terms of, uh, you know, how you plan for the medium to longer term, but how you deal with the issues that are happening. So at the moment, you know, we have this war in, in Ukraine, which which brings energy transition very much into focus. A lot of parts of Europe are used to uh, cheap gas from uh, Russia, and that obviously is in conflict with uh, a lot of people's position on, on what's going on in the war. How do we, not so much with the Ukraine, but how do we deal with this where we have our medium to long-term ambition, we want to transition to cleaner energies we want a better future for our for our children but at the same time you know we're having to navigate through these real world um, issues where we still need the oil we still need the gas for the cars we still need the gas for our our heat our homes how do we how do we plot a course through this where we we can deal with the short term but we keep our eyes fixed on on those longer term life goals that you quite rightly talk about First off, I just want to acknowledge that parts of this are going to be tough and having to pay more for things that you traditionally haven't had to pay more, inflation, this is not easy. And to your point earlier, the things that are not easy tend to be easier for people that have money, which is a fundamentally unfair part of life. If you are struggling to fill up your car anyway, it gets so much harder because it's taking up a larger proportion of your income. And that is fundamentally unfair. So I just want to say that if you are in that position, like I hear you, I feel you, and that is very unfortunate. If you are in the position to have more of that disposable income and it is not pinching quite as much, to you, I say this is the chance to really look at your consumption, to really look at where you are getting your energy from. Is this the time to put solar panels in? Is this the time to look at if you can trade in your non-energy efficient car for something that is more energy efficient? So I think that if you are able from a consumer standpoint, this is a chance for you to really start to vote with your wallet, Mm -hmm. to support not just where you are now, but where you want to be and take a few steps towards living the lifestyle and living the energy footprint that you want to have and start down that journey of the aspirational. My last question would be, it's been fascinating talking to you and, and you know, you've brought so much to, to bear. I was really interested in what you're talking about with your 
African examples and and uh, I also fascinated by what you've been saying about personal choices and and having to 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 weigh it up and and it not being easy but also I feel you're an optimist I mean you were talking you got very excited when we we're talking about technology about uh, quantum and where we're sitting right now which one of those wins through are you optimistic that uh, you know we have a route through this and uh, if you are what do you think that route is I'm 100% optimistic we have a route through this. And I really hope that most people are. Because if you're not, I don't know how you get out of bed every morning and continue living your life in a way that brings you joy and happiness. Um, I think the route through this looks, looks like there's some challenges, but I think it also looks in many ways like individuals are rediscovering a lot of joy locally. They're rediscovering community. They're rediscovering what brings them value. They're putting different emphasis on their life that allows them to find joy, not so much in some of the the tendencies that have allowed them to have a bigger and bigger carbon footprint, but allowed them to have a more fulfilled life. At least that's what fuels my optimistic fire, and that's what I push myself to do. I push myself to pick up more hobbies, to be a force that I can be locally, and to try to think about the the legacy I want to leave in the world and act on that. Well, that's a great point to leave it. Thanks ever so much indeed for talking to us. We really appreciate it and for sharing those thoughts. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening. That concludes our Innovations Uncovered series. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and follow to be alerted when new episodes are released. So until next time, I'm Stephen Horn and you're listening to On The Edge.